The National Archives podcast series, Writer of the Month, a biography of Thomas Cromwell, presented by Tracy Borman. This talk was recorded live on the 18th of November 2014 at the National Archives Q. Well, it is a great pleasure to be back. I absolutely loved my time working here at Q, and it's changed an awful lot uh, in the 15 years or so since I was last here. But my connection with the archives remains, and I think will remain for as long as I'm writing history, because it has the most extraordinary collection of historical documents, particularly for my subject today, Thomas Cromwell. And the reason the archives here are so significant for Cromwell's life is because of Cromwell's death, because of his ultimate fate. He was, of course, arrested for treason, all of his personal papers were seized and they became the property of the state, hence ending up here at Kew. And thank goodness in a way, although I shouldn't say that really because I actually rather like Cromwell, but if it hadn't been for the fate that he met, we probably wouldn't have his correspondence. Uh, he would almost certainly have destroyed it before his death if he knew what was coming because it was extraordinarily sensitive. Um, a lot of it was scandalous. And I'm going to tell you uh, some of the highlights from that correspondence today. Before I start on Cromwell's life though, I would just like to ask for a show of hands as to how many people have either read or seen the stage play of Wolf Hall and its sequel bring up the bodies and or wow okay <laughs> this is the moment when I always do sort of go slightly green with envy at Hilary Mantel's sales figures but that's uh you're you're above average uh, even for it's always at least half the audience but um I think that that was a good sort of three quarters if not more um I am going to be making reference to those novels and the plays during my talk but don't worry if yours wasn't one of the hands that went up because it is uh the real Cromwell um, that I'm going to be telling you about, so you don't have to have read the novels. But Wolf Hall did change everything where Cromwell was concerned. Before the publication of that Booker Prize-winning novel and its Booker Prize-winning sequel in 2009, if you'd said the name Cromwell, most people would have assumed you meant Oliver, not Thomas. Hilary Mantel really put Thomas Cromwell on the map. But more than that, she turned him from a villain into a hero. Well, I don't know about you, but certainly when I was at school, I was taught Thomas More good, Thomas Cromwell bad. That was how it played out. And didn't Hilary Mantel turn all of that on its head? You end up thinking that More is rather a sinister, quite awful character really. Uh, he keeps slaves, he's horrible to his wife, uh, he is a political manoeuvrer, every bit as ruthless as Cromwell was alleged to be. Cromwell on the other hand emerges from Hilary Mantel's novels as a very sympathetic character. Uh, he's streetwise, intelligent, he's a family man, he's loyal to his friends and you certainly I think end up on Cromwell's side by the end of those two novels. And I want to try and give you a sense of where I think the truth lies uh, between that traditional view of Cromwell the villain and now Cromwell the hero. 
And I did wonder, because I did suspect that being an educated audience such as I was going to get at the National Archives, that um, you know, a lot of you would be very familiar uh, with Mantell's works. And of course, there's going to be a third one, uh, a third and final installment, which I understand isn't due till the year after next. Um, and the second book ends in about 1536 with the fall of Anne Boleyn and the rise of Jane Seymour. And I did wonder whether I ought to end my talk in the same year and not spoil it for anybody who's waiting <laughs> for the third novel. Um, but maybe I'll do that thing they used to do on the news on a Saturday night. Maybe they still do when they say, if anyone is watching Match of the Day, uh, you know, look away now if you don't want to know the scores. So I'll warn you when I get beyond 1536. And if you, you know, you can, I won't take offense if you get up and leave at that stage. Well, Cromwell, um, to start on his life, he was born in around 1485. We can only say around because he was a nobody when he was born. He was of obscure birth, so the sources delight in telling us. And it was a significant fact in the Tudor period. We're just in the Tudor period, if indeed it was 1485. This is the year that Richard III is defeated at the Battle of Bosworth by the first Tudor, Henry VII. And the Tudors placed a very great deal of importance on birth and status at court. So this is why it's so often remarked that Cromwell was not of any great pedigree. Instead, he was merely the son of a blacksmith from Putney, not far from here really. And Putney in those days was nothing like it is today. It's quite a nice affluent suburb of London today, isn't it? And you perhaps wouldn't remark that much if somebody was born in Putney and went on to great things in politics. It wouldn't be that surprising. It was very surprising in the late 15th century. It's one of those areas of London that has changed an awful lot. Putney in 1485 was not the sort of place you'd have wanted to find yourself after dark or even before dark. During daylight hours, it was full of criminals and cutthroats and con men. And there was none worse than Thomas Cromwell's own father, Walter Cromwell. I mentioned he was a blacksmith, but he was so much more than that. The archetypal jack of all trades. He was a landowner, a moneylender, a brewer. He dyed cloth. He had all sorts of little businesses, but none of them seemed to do particularly well because he was always in debt. He was always as well in trouble with the law. When I was researching in the archives, I was astounded to find that on no fewer than 43 occasions was Walter Cromwell hauled before the authorities. His crimes ranged from drunken brawls to the worst crime of all, as it was seen by the Tudors, watering down the beer that he sold. That was seen as unforgivable and the penalties were severe. Well, Hilary Mantel hints at quite a difficult relationship between Walter Cromwell and his son, Thomas. And I think there is something to bear this out, even though the records generally are, are really sparse for Cromwell's early years before he, he'd risen to prominence. He certainly seemed very keen to escape the family home. That's exactly what he'd done before the turn of the century. While he was still in his mid-teens, he left not just Putney, but England altogether. And he next turns up in France. He's a mercenary 
in the French army, and he fights in a battle in southern Italy near Naples in 1503. And that experience was enough to put Thomas Cromwell off the military life for good. He deserts the army and travels north to Florence. Well, we're now at the beginning of the 16th century, and what a place to be at this time. Florence is in the epicenter of the high Renaissance in Italy. It is the most cultured city in the world, arguably. It is full of renowned scholars and artists and writers. And here we have the blacksmith's son from Putney turning up in this very, very civilized city indeed. But it's not like Cromwell's suddenly on the rise. He's in this amazing place, so he's able to enjoy it because he has no means. He's left the army. He has no other employment. And in fact, he's found begging on the streets of Florence. But this is when he has his first piece of good fortune because he is found by just the right person, a very wealthy Florentine merchant called Fra Francesco Frescobaldi. And there's one thing that Frescobaldi likes more than anything else, and that's English people. And there's something about Cromwell that catches his eye. So he goes to talk to him and ask him why he's begging, why he's fallen on hard times. And as soon as Cromwell opens his mouth to reply, Frescobaldi exclaims with joy that he's an Englishman. He, he insists that Cromwell comes back to his house, his very rich and lavish house in Florence, and that he will train him up as a merchant. Well, of course, Cromwell agrees with alacrity, and he's then found in the household of Frescobaldi for the next few years. Whilst there, he not only learns trade, he teaches himself several languages, Italian, of course, but also Latin, French, German, a whole host of different languages uh, in order to help him in his new trade uh, as a merchant. He also starts to learn law and he studies the classics. Cromwell is clearly a very precocious young man. He cannot get enough knowledge and learning and he really justifies Frescobaldi's faith in him. And the other thing that Cromwell receives during his time in his household in Florence is, of course, a cultural education because Frescobaldi is a patron of some of the greatest artists of the Italian Renaissance. And there's one particular artist who's very fond of Frescobaldi's household and particularly of Frescobaldi's wine, but he can't afford to buy much of this wine. So what he does is he paints for Frescobaldi and exchanges his paintings for wine. That's how he gets paid. And his name is Michelangelo. And so Cromwell grows up in this household. He, he sort of, his formative years are spent surrounded by the works of one of the greatest Italian artists of the time. By the time he leaves uh, Florence, and we don't know exactly the year, it's all very much circa this and circa that for the early part of Cromwell's life, he is a, quite a, a, an affluent young man. He's certainly a very educated young man, and he leaves on very good terms with Frescobaldi, his pockets filled with gold, so the sources tell us. Cromwell decides to make his way gradually back to London, but he spends a few years first in the Netherlands, picking up more contacts and experience in the great trading centres there, such as Bruges and Lille and Antwerp. And so you can imagine just how well connected he is 
by the time he finally arrives back in England in about 1513, 1514. So he's almost 30, if we can believe that birth date, by the time he comes back to London. And he is a changed man with a, an education far removed from anything he could have had if he had stayed in Putney. It was just the best ever gap year or gap <laughs> decade, if you like, a sort of modern parallel. Well, Cromwell rapidly establishes himself in several businesses. He's learned from his father, even though he didn't get on with him. But whereas his father was the jack of all trades, Cromwell becomes the master of them. He's soon a very, very prosperous lawyer and merchant. He's very popular with the merchants of London because of his great contacts across Western Europe. He's a moneylender. He's a landowner. You can get the picture of how prosperous Cromwell soon becomes in London. And he does what any other prosperous young man would look to do uh, when establishing himself and, importantly, establishing his dynasty. He takes a wife. Well, the lady Cromwell chooses is a wealthy widow. I'm not being totally cynical, but I think some of her appeal at least would have lay in the fact that she came from a, a very good family and she had a great deal of money. Her, her name was Elizabeth Williams. Well, Hilary, Hilary Mantel paints a picture of a very loving marriage between Cromwell and his wife, Elizabeth. But in fact, I was quite disappointed to discover that there isn't that much evidence really for the nature of their relationship. In fact, there's just one letter between Cromwell and his wife. And that letter was written several years into their marriage. And it's quite brief. It's quite perfunctory. It's here in the National Archives, by the way, if anyone wants to read it. Um, and it concerns a gift that Cromwell is sending his wife. So my hopes rose at that point. I thought, well, perhaps he was an old romantic after all. He's sending his wife Elizabeth a gift. What is the gift, I thought, I read on. A dead deer was the answer. <laughs> that, uh, that Cromwell had been on hunt in, down in Kent and he slaughtered this deer and he was sending it back to his wife in London with instructions that she wasn't allowed to keep the whole deer. She had to chop it up and give half to his friends to keep them sweet. So, it seemed quite disappointing as presents go. But then I did more research into this subject and actually discovered that the Tudors had very different tastes in gifts to what we have today. And giving your wife a dead deer was one of the greatest compliments you could pay her because another name for a deer or a male fallow deer is a heart. See where I'm going with this? You give your heart to your wife or your true love. That's, it was hugely symbolic. So perhaps it was, after all, a romantic gesture. It was certainly a gesture that Henry VIII made to several ladies at court. So Cromwell had a good example to follow. Well, his wife um, certainly was successful as a wife. She seemed very loyal to Cromwell. She would carry out um, business for him when he was away from London. And she also gave him three children, uh, a son, the Tudor obsession with sons was uh, satisfied. The son was called Gregory. He was probably the firstborn of the children. And then there were two daughters, Anne and Grace. And I think it's really to Cromwell's credit that he invested as much in the education of those girls as he did in his son. And that was extraordinary for the time. People thought it was literally a waste of money to teach girls anything other than how to be a wife, you know, household affairs, 
embroidery, cooking, that kind of thing. Why bother teaching them languages or religion or classics? It could go nowhere. It could only create trouble to give a woman learning, so one commentator uh, observed. But Cromwell thought differently. He adored his daughters and he spent lavishly on their education. And it's quite an ironic fact that he also spent lavishly on the education of his son Gregory, and it was a complete waste of money. Gregory was not the natural scholar that his father was, and there's a lovely series of letters here in the National Archives that pass between Thomas Cromwell and his son Gregory, where you sense Cromwell's growing exasperation with his son. He begs him to just write me something in Latin. Come on, just get, show me that your lessons haven't been in vain. And Gregory tries to construct a few sentences and fails and kind of sends back these um, badly written apologetic replies to his father. But undoubtedly, despite his disappointment in his son's learning, uh, Cromwell was enormously affectionate uh, towards his son. You get the sense of a very close, loving family unit uh, in the Cromwell household. Well, it's now the 1520s. Cromwell is a man of business. He's also a happily married man, I think we can infer from the sources, and he comes to the attention of the most powerful man in England next to the king, Henry VIII himself. That man is Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. He has been Henry VIII's right-hand man since the very beginning of his reign because Henry came to the throne a pleasure-loving prince, more intent on the hunt than on affairs of state. And it was all to do with Henry's upbringing, I think, because Henry was never meant to be king. He was the spare, he wasn't the heir. The heir was Arthur, Henry's older brother. Of course, um, he died unexpectedly young and Henry, who'd been indulged and loved partying and hunting and women, was suddenly thrust forward into the spotlight. I could draw modern parallels. I'm going to resist the temptation. Um, anyway, uh, so Henry finds himself king. He doesn't give up that pleasure-seeking lifestyle, so he's all too pleased that Wolsey, the ever-capable Wolsey, is on hand to take on the burdens of state. But Wolsey is unusual. You do get many capable statesmen in this period, but what sets Wolsey apart is his birth, and I mentioned earlier how much birth mattered to the Tudors, because Wolsey is not a noble or a, a duke or an earl or any other such that you might commonly find at court. He is the son of a butcher, so he's of the same lowly status as Cromwell, and he's despised for it by most of his peers at court who think he has no business to be there whatsoever. But Henry realizes Wolsey's ability, his capacity to get him whatever he wants, and so he gives him an enormous amount of power. And he cares little for the fact that Wolsey is so unpopular with all of his other courtiers. Well, I think the commonality of their birth gives something very important uh, to Wolsey and Cromwell. It certainly draws them together. Wolsey notices Cromwell during the 1520s, this man of business about London, and he soon commissions him uh, with various important legal tasks, employs him more and more, gets him some important clients, and Cromwell is seen around London 
wearing Wolsey's livery or uniform, a sign that he is Wolsey's man. And he has chosen well, it seems, in his great patron, because of course he can introduce him to the very highest circles of court. But then, just when everything seems set fair, everything suddenly unravels for Cromwell at the end of the 1520s, both in his public life but also in his personal life. And starting with the latter, in the summer of 1528, a terrifying disease sweeps across London. It's known as the English sweat or the sweating sickness. And each time it visits London, it claims more lives than even the plague itself. And it is so terrifying because, not just because of the number of victims, but because of the speed of the virus, you can feel perfectly well one moment and be dead an hour later, having taken a sudden fever. It claims thousands of victims with each fresh epidemic. And in the summer of 1528, it takes the life of Cromwell's well-beloved wife, Elizabeth. The following summer, 1529, the epidemic comes back and Cromwell's two young daughters perish in that epidemic. He is grief-stricken. Uh, it's very tragic to read his will, again, part of the treasures of the National Archives. And you go back to Cromwell's will and just see the various bequests that he has made. He's drawn it up shortly after his wife's death, and he leaves a great deal to his daughters, Anne and Grace. And then he's gone back to the will the following year and simply crossed out the names of my little daughters, as he calls them, Anne and Grace. They cannot have been very old when they died. The deaths of his wife and daughters strengthened the bond between Cromwell and his son. And it's Gregory who now really is the focus of pretty much all of Cromwell's personal energy. Of course, he's got his public career, but he feels increasingly protective and loving towards his surviving son. Well, the same year that Cromwell's daughters die, there's also a catastrophe in his public life because in October 1529, Cromwell's great patron Wolsey suddenly and very dramatically falls from grace. He is thrown out of court from his great play, uh, palace, York Place in, in London, and forced to retreat uh, rather ignominiously to Isha, where he has a much humbler dwelling. He's stripped of all his titles and his roles at court. What on earth can have caused such a sudden turn of events? A certain lady called Anne Boleyn. Anne has been on the scene at the court in uh, London since about 1522. And since about 1526, she has been the center of Henry VIII's world. He absolutely adores Anne Boleyn. He is trying desperately to rid himself of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, in order to marry her because Anne very audaciously has refused to be Henry's mistress. She's seen a whole string of women ruin their reputations and their lives in that way, including her own sister, Mary. She's not going to go the same way. She holds out for the much greater prize of being queen, and she makes that clear from the outset. She is a woman of extraordinary vision and courage, I think we can say. Well, Henry had set Wolsey the task of getting his 
divorce, you really get a sense that Wolsey is like the indulgent parent and Henry is the spoilt child. He just constantly says, go and get me that please, or not even please. Uh, he asks for the divorce. Wolsey makes a show of trying to get it for him, but I don't think he tries all that hard because Wolsey has his eyes on the papacy. It says he has ambitions to be no less than Pope, the highest honor arguably in the entire world. And it would do that ambition no favors whatsoever if he were to deeply upset the then Pope by asking for a divorce, a very scandalous thing in the early 16th century. So really Wolsey, goes through the motions of trying to get a divorce, but of course he fails. It's a tortuous process. Henry gets increasingly frustrated, and more so, and she starts to whisper to Henry that Wolsey is a traitor. He's defying the royal will. Get rid of him and you will solve the problem. Henry reluctantly uh, assents to her request, and hence Wolsey's sudden dismissal from court in the late autumn of 1529. Well, this spells disaster for Cromwell. I mentioned that Cromwell is seen very much as Wolsey's man, and it's very hard to win back a reputation once lost. And Cromwell realizes this. All of his hopes for greatness had lain with Wolsey. Now Wolsey is effectively out of the picture and it's expected that he will drag down all of his closest attendants. Cromwell included. And that's why Cromwell, uh, in, in the only recorded show of emotion, is found weeping in Isha, in Wolsey's humble dwelling in Isha. Uh, he just loses sense of uh, decorum and he's openly weeping for the fall of his master because he realizes it could easily spell his own fall, the end of his career. But he's not one naturally given to self-pity. He soon rallies and declares, I will this afternoon to court to make or mar. Well, he does make it at court. He makes history at the court of Henry VIII. He goes there with the worst possible chance of success because here he is, another low-born person when they've just got rid of the main low-born person in the form of Wolsey. And he's not going for himself. He's going to plead forgiveness for that despised counsellor, Wolsey. So surely he has no chance of success at all. Well, so his uh, noble peers suspect, but within just one short year, Cromwell has turned everything around. He has become really a replacement for Wolsey. He has won a, a temporary reprieve for his old master. He's served him very loyally in petitioning the king on his behalf. He's also become a member of the Privy Council, the inner sanctum of government, and is greatly trusted by the king. And there's no sense that Cromwell is at all overawed by this rapid rise to greatness. He's a stranger to the court, and yet within a year he's dominating it. And there are some lovely accounts in the papers of um, the council meetings that Cromwell takes part in. And he doesn't just sit there obediently, kind of deeply grateful to be there at all. He is, as uh, one of his very resentful colleagues uh, expresses it, always the first to speak in meetings. They really resent this upstart who has an opinion on everything and has an annoying habit of being right as well. 
Cromwell doesn't fear the king, it seems, at all. Uh, he's not afraid to tell Henry the truth, even when that truth is unpalatable. His quality of irreverence is one of my favorite of all Cromwell's qualities, and I do think he had many. And just to illustrate that a bit more, just how irreverent, uh, cheeky even, Cromwell could be, uh, in 1517, so shortly after his return to England, he'd been sent back to Rome on behalf of a church in Lincolnshire to secure a papal grant for this church, a very lucrative grant. And already Cromwell was known as Mr. Fixer, who could get what you wanted if you paid him enough. So the church in Lincolnshire sent him over there on their behalf. And Cromwell, rather than just joining a queue, a very long queue of supplicants for the Pope's favor, he did what he always did best. He found out what was in the Pope's heart. What do men most desire? What are their weak spots? if you like. Well, the Pope at the time liked three things. He liked hunting, he liked English music, and he had a sweet tooth. So Cromwell, from his contacts in Rome, gathered together a little troop of English singers. He found where the Pope was going to be hunting that day, and he took the troop of singers with him into the middle of the forest, directly on the path where the Pope would be passing. Sure enough, along comes the Pope with his entourage and suddenly hears this amazing music as if by magic in the middle of the forest and draws up his horse. And then Cromwell steps forward with the pièce de résistance, a plate of jelly for the Pope. <laughs> and the Pope gives him everything he wants. It is devastatingly effective and Cromwell employs the same tactic time and time again with Henry VIII. He has this knack a very unique talent for bringing great figures down to their human level, their human desires. And I think this is the secret of Cromwell's genius. It certainly works a treat with Henry VIII. And little wonder that he soon rises to greatness at his court. In 1532, he has his first major uh, appointment after being uh, made a privy councillor, he is made master of the jewel house. This effectively puts him in charge of the crown jewels at the Tower of London. Not an onerous task, but a very lucrative one. It comes with a very nice salary. And it's almost certainly to celebrate this appointment that Cromwell has this famous portrait painted by the greatest portrait painter of the age, Holbein. Now, I think this portrait's got a lot to answer for because Cromwell hasn't been a popular man. He's been seen as, a, as one historian's described him, a humorless bureaucrat. And you can kind of see why, can't you? From this portrait, he's looking quite grumpy. Uh, he's wearing black. He's just dressed in black. There's a very strict etiquette regarding color at the Tudor court. It's all according to your rank as to, you know, the more uh, prestigious you are, the more colorful you can be. Cromwell by this time has enough rank to be dressed in all sorts of colors, but he chooses black, somber black. He looks deep in concentration, I think we can kindly say. He looks actually borderline grumpy in that portrait. But when you see the whole thing, a completely different picture emerges. And I would encourage you to go and see it's actually a copy of the original, but a very good copy, an early copy in the National Portrait Gallery, because in fact, the whole painting shows Cromwell at work. 
in his study. He's sitting at his desk in front of a pile of papers. Top of that pile of papers, by the way, is a letter addressed to Cromwell, Master of the Jewels. That's how we know it was painted to celebrate that appointment. And Cromwell wanted to be shown like this, not striking some philosophical pose on an estate in the country as most of his peers would have done, but at work. He's a man of action. That's how he wants to go down in history. And he was incredibly hard working. We know this thanks to that voluminous correspondence that's here in the National Archives, because there were so many letters and memos and remembrances, as Cromwell called them. It was almost like a little to-do list he did every day. Top of the list on Monday, you know, dissolve a few monosteries. Number two, get a divorce for Henry VIII, that kind of thing. Um, and he, he wrote so many of these notes that he didn't just date them. He timed them. And it was not unusual for the earliest of those notes to be timed at 4 a.m. and the last one of the day to be at midnight. He seemed to need little sleep. Somebody once asked me in a talk, does he have anything else in common with Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> I hope never to be asked that question again in a talk, so I'm preempting it every time I give this talk now. Um, so he was uh, rewarded very richly for this hard work, Henry soon realized he'd, founded, he'd found another gem to replace Wolsey. Well, by 1532, Cromwell not only has this portrait painted, he also does what any affluent career man would do, or woman would do today, uh, if they were on the up. He has an extension built on his house. <laughs> Now, Cromwell's house, he has a favourite house, several other dwellings across London, but his favourite house is in Austin Friars in the City of London, quite close to the Tower of London, very handy for Cromwell's role in charge of the crown jewels. And Cromwell loves Austin Friars so much that rather than just buy a bigger house, he decides to quadruple the size of Austin Friars. Well, in 1532, London was pretty much as crowded as it is today. So you couldn't do such a great extension without buying up land and houses from around your own property, as you might expect. And such was Cromwell's reputation by this time that most of his neighbours were all too happy to sell him their land and their houses. But there's always one isn't there? And that one was old Mr. Edward Stowe, who had quite a poor dwelling, but it was directly in the way of Cromwell's great plans for extending Austin Friars. And I tell you this story to demonstrate why Cromwell becomes known as Mr. Fixer. No problem is too great for his sharp mind. So what does he do to get around the problem of Mr. Stowe's house? Does he forget his extension, maybe reduce the size? Not a bit of it. Mr. Stowe's house, I mentioned, was a poor dwelling. It has no foundations. So Cromwell gathers his builders together and instructs them to put Mr. Stowe's house on rollers. And they simply push it out of the way, some 20 feet further down the street. So poor Mr. Stowe comes back one evening to find his house no longer where it was that morning. You can imagine him key in hand. And there's just a sort of blank space there. It's a true story. It's quite an extraordinary story. Uh, but unfortunately for Cromwell, Mr. Stowe's son uh, was a historian, a great antiquarian, and he wrote the whole thing up in very scandalized language in his book and not surprisingly despised Cromwell uh, for what he'd done 
to uh, his father, but it does show you why he becomes known as a man who can fix any problem. Well, of course, there was a much bigger problem to fix at court. That was the problem of the divorce or the lack of divorce for the king. And in 1533, the year after work started on Austin Friars, Cromwell finally secures a divorce for his royal master. It wasn't just due to Cromwell. Other minds had been at work on the campaign, but he gave that campaign fresh impetus. And Henry finally divorces Catherine of Aragon and marries Anne Boleyn. I wish I could say it was in that order, but Henry loses patience and effectively becomes a bigamist in the last few months of the campaign. By the time he marries Anne Boleyn, she too has given way a little. She's already pregnant by the time of the marriage. And in September 1533, she enters her confinement. This is where a royal wife would basically be closeted away from society for about a month before the birth of her child. And Henry gleefully prepares the celebrations for the birth of his prince. The fireworks are ordered, the tournaments are planned, and then on the 7th of September, a girl is born. Henry is devastated. Anne had promised him faithfully she would give him the son that he so desired that would help to secure his dynasty, and she'd given him just another useless daughter, and he already had one of those. What possible good could come of anyone called Elizabeth? Anyway, therein lies another book entirely. Well, Anne's uh, copy book had been well and truly blotted, but it wasn't the end for her. It's easy to cast hindsight on this situation and say Anne failed to give Henry a son in 1533, so it was the end. Well, it wasn't quite the end because she proved she could have a healthy child. There was still hope she might have a son. In fact, though, she did not. She had a series of miscarriages after the birth of Elizabeth. The final one of those was in January 1536, when at 14 weeks pregnant, Anne miscarries of what has the appearance of a male child. Henry is convinced from that moment that his marriage is cursed and he instructs Cromwell to get him out of it. Well, Cromwell enters into this task rather tentatively at first. He cannot just get another divorce for Henry, he soon realises, because it would make a mockery of the first divorce and all of the rationale for that. And Cromwell is nothing if not a skilled lawyer. But Cromwell has his own motivation for getting rid of Anne Boleyn in an altogether more permanent way than simply getting an annulment. And that's because by 1536, Cromwell and Anne Boleyn are deadly enemies. It's literally a battle to the death between these two great powers of Henry's court. They had started as allies, as you might expect. Cromwell had effectively put Anne on the throne, but they had argued bitterly over his religious reforms, particularly the, the dissolution of the monasteries and the diversion of all the monasteries' wealth to the crown, which Henry VIII loved, but Anne Boleyn believed should have gone to charitable causes, and she blamed Cromwell for it. She made no secret of her hatred for Henry's chief minister. She told him openly in court that she wished to see his head off his shoulders. Cromwell knew it was his neck or hers, as he put it. So he set about a plot, and I do think it was down to Cromwell, the downfall of Anne Boleyn. There have been many theories about this, uh, but there's so much compelling evidence that Cromwell masterminded Anne's fall and indeed her death. 
He drew inspiration for his plot from Anne's naturally flirtatious behavior with her coterie of male favorites. She wasn't at all popular with her ladies. By contrast, Cromwell knew it, and he started to secretly instruct her ladies to gather tidbits of evidence about the queen's indiscretions with her male favorites. Before long, he had enough pieces of gossip, and I think it was little more than gossip, to take to the king, and Henry needed no further evidence to have Anne arrested and thrown into the Tower of London. It was a great shock to Anne. She certainly had not seen it coming, even though she knew that she was no longer high in favor with the king. Well, she was put on trial, but it was a foregone conclusion, so much so that the records show that Henry VIII had already ordered the executioner from Calais several days before the trial even took place. On the 19th of May, having been found guilty, Anne was executed at the Tower of London. Cromwell followed up this triumph by allying his family more closely than ever before to that of Henry VIII. Henry had married Jane Seymour with unseemly haste shortly after Anne's demise, and Cromwell managed to secure an incredibly prestigious marriage for that cherished son, Gregory, because he marries Gregory to Jane Seymour's sister, Elizabeth. So he's now pretty much kin with the royal family. It seems that Cromwell is invincible. Surely nobody can now bring him down. But isn't it often the way when people seem at their most powerful that their true vulnerability is shown? And that's exactly what happens now with Cromwell. And we're at that look away moment, okay? Um, if you can, you know, if, if you don't want to hear it, then um, please do go and get a cup of coffee in the excellent cafe that I can testify to how nice that cafe is, having spent an hour in it earlier. Um, well, what happens really in Cromwell's life now is a series of battles to hold on to power. And um, most of the trouble um, starts as a result of Cromwell's increasingly radical religious reforms. The dissolution of the monasteries is well underway by now. Um, you can read all about it in the archives here, particularly the Valor Ecclesiasticus, that beautiful illuminated manuscript, which basically is a valuation of the church and its huge wealth um, at the time of Cromwell's appointment as vicar general in 1535. And it tells them how much the king is going to profit from the dissolution, and that's why Henry's all too happy to support it. But although he is in the beginning, the dissolution proves deeply unpopular with the people of England, and particularly they see Cromwell as the architect of all of this. He is the one who's destroying their beautiful religious houses, which have been centers of charity as well as of worship. And soon rebellion breaks out, the first and most dangerous being the pilgrimage of grace in 1536. And those pilgrims, as they called themselves, are very clear. They're not rebelling against their king. They're rebelling against his despised minister Cromwell. They call for his head on a spike as all other traitors on London Bridge. Henry starts to get nervous about Cromwell. He'd supported him up until now, but he realizes he is losing the love of his subjects. And he starts to gradually retreat back to his old conservative religious policies. And he also starts to demonstrate 
how little he is controlled by Cromwell. He does this by insulting him in council meetings, uh, by allying himself with Cromwell's enemies, most notably the Duke of Norfolk and the Bishop of Winchester, Stephen Gardiner, but also by using physical violence against Cromwell. There are many descriptions of Henry literally beating Cromwell up in front of the court, pommeling him about the head as if he were a dog, so one eyewitness tells us. And Cromwell was forced to put a brave face on it and come back out into the privy chamber with as merry a countenance as if he held all before him. Well, Cromwell was not merry. Cromwell was incredibly frightened by the late 1530s. He had seen enemies fall before now. He knew that his own fate could be just that at the Tower of London and on the executioner's block. Well, it was actually a mistake of Cromwell's own making that, that started things really unraveling uh, in 1539. And that mistake was uh, all to do with Henry's next marriage. Jane Seymour had died shortly after giving birth to that longed-for prince, the future Edward VI. The hunt was on for a fourth wife for this much-married monarch. And Cromwell thought he had found the ideal candidate. Her name was Anne, and she was from the Duchy of Cleves, which was also of the reformist religion, had also rejected papal authority. So was, Cromwell thought, an absolutely ideal ally to take forward his reforms. This alliance would be very symbolic in Cromwell's policies. Well, Henry wasn't going to agree to marry anybody until he'd at least seen what they looked like, so he dispatched Holbein over to Cleves. Holbein, I think, having been given secret instructions by Cromwell, painted quite a flattering portrait of Anne of Cleves. Henry was pl very pleased when he saw it. He declared he would sign the treaty of marriage, and so they were betrothed, um, inextricably betrothed, I might add. Anne made her way to England, and Henry, in great chivalric tradition, rode to meet her in disguise. This is what you did if you were marrying somebody you'd never met before. Well, he comes into the room, Anne is there before him, and he is horrified. He, he takes Cromwell immediately to one side and shouts, I like her not. Cromwell's instructions once more are to get the king out of his marriage, but Cromwell cannot. Skilled lawyer though he is, he knows that marriage contract is absolutely binding. Henry has no choice but to go ahead with the wedding. Can you imagine how popular Cromwell is with his king at this moment? Well, Cromwell's enemies rejoice. Surely this is the end of the despised chief minister. One of them writes, Cromwell is tottering to a contact outside of the court. Well, Henry has married Anne Boleyn in early 1540. What does he do in April 1540? Does he sign Cromwell's death warrant? No, he doesn't. He makes Cromwell Earl of Essex, the highest honour Cromwell has ever had. It is a remarkable turnaround. Cromwell has persuaded Henry to forgive him. He's persuaded him of his loyalty and of his usefulness to the king. And so Henry just restores Cromwell to favour. Cromwell's enemies utterly despair of ever getting rid of him, but they soon rally as well, just as Cromwell once had, and they step up their campaign against him 
and they soon succeed. On the 10th of June, 1540, Cromwell arrives late to a meeting of the Privy Council. As soon as he walks through the door, there is a cry of traitor. The King's guards rush forward. They grab Cromwell and throw him into a waiting barge, which takes him downriver to the Tower of London. He is on suspicion of treason. He demands to know the charges. The charges are not brought forward immediately because they are still being made up by his enemies. And when they are published, they are fanciful, is a polite way of describing them. Top of the list is that Cromwell had intended to oust Henry from the throne, to make himself king, to marry Henry's eldest daughter Mary, to legitimize his dynasty, and so the list goes on. It is ludicrous. Cromwell must have been confident of refuting every single one of those charges when it came to court, but his enemies have no intention of putting the world's most renowned lawyer on trial. There's a very clever legal device called a bill of attainder, which bypasses the need for a trial in certain cases. A bill is duly drawn up against Cromwell and is passed by Parliament, who had thought up that clever legal device. I think Cromwell lived to regret it. Well, Cromwell is now a dead man walking. He's been convicted for treason and sentenced to death at the Tower. His only hope is to persuade Henry to relent as he so often has in the past. And he writes a series of letters to his sovereign. Um, and reading the originals of those was just heartbreaking because you see the deterioration of Cromwell's handwriting as he gets more and more desperate. He's pleading with his life. And the last of those letters ends with a desperate heartfelt postscript, which reads, most gracious prince, I cry for mercy, mercy, mercy. That letter makes Henry VIII stop in his tracks. He asks, asks for it to be read to him, not once, but three times. It seems he's about to change his mind once more and pardon Cromwell, but then he changes his mind again and sends Cromwell to the block. On the 28th of July, 1540, Cromwell is led up to Tower Hill, where commoners are executed, only those of noble birth are allowed the privilege of being executed within the Tower of London, within the pr more private confines of the Tower. And it's said that Cromwell's old enemy Norfolk has one final piece of revenge in store because he either bribes the executioner or gets him drunk, and it takes three blows of the axe to sever Cromwell's head from his body. Many lamented but more rejoiced, so one commentator tells us. Those lamented, who lamented are undoubtedly the poor people of London. Cromwell had been one of the most charitable men at court, giving daily alms to people outside his various houses in London. He had been a man of the people, always in touch with public opinion, always caring for what people thought and what they wanted. Those who rejoiced were, of course, his noble enemies at court who had finally got rid of this troublesome upstart, the, the blacksmith's son from Putney. And the king himself very callously chose the, the day of Cromwell's execution to marry again. He'd got rid of Anne of Cleves in a divorce finally, and he marries Catherine Howard as if to prove how little he cared for the death of his old servant Cromwell. 
but he soon regretted it. He had taken Cromwell for granted during the 10 years of Cromwell's greatness at court. He hadn't realized the extent of what Cromwell had done for him, how hard he had worked, how loyal he had been. And when he did realize the extent of his mistake in having Cromwell executed, he was grief stricken and he was heard to lament the loss of the most faithful servant he had ever had. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.